This is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and I'm running down some of the top stories of the week. Don't forget to check out the Daily Dive Monday through Friday for more news without the noise. This week, we had a setback in vaccine development as AstraZeneca and Oxford University had to put a hold on their stage three clinical trials of their experimental COVID vaccine candidate. One participant in the UK came down with an unexplained illness, forcing the trial to shut down while an investigation could be done. Many say that these types of pauses are routine, and it also shows that the vaccine will not be rushed out to the masses. For more on what this pause means, we'll speak to Rebecca Robbins, reporter at Stat News. So this hold is essentially a pause on the trial, a safety mechanism to investigate what happened, to find out why this patient got sick and see how widespread the issue might be and and how serious it might be. It's important to keep in mind that clinical holds get placed on trials all the time. This is not uncommon. It's part of vaccine development, but it is a concern and and it's worth checking out. So I think the observation from many folks in the scientific community is, is this is an example of science working the way it is supposed to. One of the interesting things, though, is that since we're following all the news, any tiny little development when it comes to the virus right now, this can seem like a little bit of a setback, especially since the AstraZeneca vaccine candidate was one of the front runners. I think it's the first one that started phase three trials, at least in the UK, and everything's been moving so fast. So you hear, oh, we got to put a hold on it. That could be concerning to some people. It certainly is. And experts we've spoken with do think that this will slow down the trial. It'll slow down enrollment of new patients as well as dosing for patients who are already in the trial. And again, this is a global shutdown. We're talking the shutdown of the various trials in the United States and several other countries around the world. And so this is something that could jeopardize the effort by the Trump administration to fast track a vaccine. There are certainly other candidates that are are in the running, but this particular candidate, which was one of the front runners, may be slowed down. And all this news came out just as the CEOs of nine of these drug companies that are making these vaccines had a safety pledge and said, you know, we're going to go through the full process and not ask for authorization until things are safe and proved to work well. What do we know about the actual illness that this person suffered to put a pause on this? In my reading, I think someone from the NIH said that it could have involved a spinal problem. So a colleague of mine at STAT, Adam Feuerstein, had an exclusive story on Wednesday, and he was able to get information from a private conference call that the CEO of the drug company behind this vaccine, AstraZeneca, had with investors. And, And during that conference call, the CEO said that the woman in the UK who triggered the shutdown of this trial experienced neurological symptoms. And these symptoms were consistent with something called transverse myelitis, which is a rare but serious spinal inflammatory disorder. The woman's diagnosis has not been confirmed yet, but she's improving and she's likely to be discharged from the hospital as early as Wednesday, the CEO said. And so what happens when these trials are shut down? Obviously, they're going to study what happened here. As you mentioned a little earlier, they're not enrolling new participants and they're stopping the dosing, except for those that might be in the middle of it and might need to continue for some reason or another. What are the next steps? They clear it. They say maybe this just happened coincidentally or or something, and then they can just resume back at full speed again? 
So we're certainly in the investigation phase at this point. Researchers are trying to figure out what happened, how serious this concern is, and whether it may pose a risk uh, more broadly. So once they're able to figure out what's going on, that could trigger a restart of the trial. And so these pauses can be short, they can be long. We don't have enough information at this point to know how long it may take. And what do we know about this specific vaccine from AstraZeneca and Oxford University? Because I know that some of the front runners, they're developing different types, some that are using mRNA and, and different other platforms for the vaccine. What do we know about this one specifically? So this vaccine uses an adenovirus that carries a gene for one of the proteins in the virus that causes COVID-19. And so the idea is that the adenovirus will induce the immune system to generate a protective response against the virus. And this is a platform that hasn't been used in an approved vaccine. So there's nothing on the market using this platform, but it has been tested in experimental vaccines against other viruses such as Ebola. Well, I mean, it's interesting to know that at least we were able to catch something, put the brakes on it. All of the early reporting that we had out of this vaccine candidate was fairly positive. There was other side effects, fever, headaches, minor things. They were deemed mild or moderate and everything kind of went away over the course of the study. So hopefully what happened with this one could be an outlier and that they can get back to it and see the larger part of the trial through. Yes, I think everyone's hoping for a vaccine that's safe and effective. And I think while there was certainly some concern in response to this news, it can be very reasonably seen as as a system working the way it's supposed to. Rebecca Robbins, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. Politically this week, there's been a lot of fallout from the new Bob Woodward book on President Trump. Trump has gone into damage control over quotes and audio clips where he said that he intentionally downplayed the coronavirus so he would not cause panic. The president continues to claim he has done a good job and is trying to shift blame onto Woodward. For more on this story, we'll speak to Orion Rumler, reporter at Axios. So in the book, Trump told Woodward on February 7th, after he spoke with President Xi about the coronavirus, he said that the virus is more deadly than even your most strenuous flu that it's airborne, and he also told Woodward in a March 19th interview that I feel like playing it down because I don't want to create a panic. And like you said, Joe Biden responded to this with one of his harshest attacks on how Trump handled the pandemic. He accused Trump of just having a dereliction of duty. He said it was beyond despicable and a disgrace, and there's been a lot of fallout. One of the interesting things of this, too, is obviously, you know, the president saw how damaging this could be for him. The perception of how he's handling it figures key into his reelection chances. And one of the interesting things that they were trying to counter with was saying, well, if Bob Woodward knew this was so serious, why didn't he come out with these quotes earlier? Why did he hold on to them? And I think uh, the president said that he knew that they were good and proper answers. So there's nothing there, really. Yes, and actually Trump brought this up today at the White House. He said that Woodward would have published this immediately if he thought this was bad, if he thought that any of the quotes that he gave them were bad. And Woodward has explained to AP and other outlets that he waited to publish this because he needed to verify what Trump said. And Woodward said that that took him until May to verify everything. 
I mean, he had 18 conversations with the president. I think they said it was about nine hours of audio tape that you had recorded. So he spent a lot of time with the president going over him with this. There's also been a lot made about why he did it. Why did the president do this? You know, he probably always had an inkling. Whatever book he wrote wasn't going to be positive. I think aides are telling him not to do it. So why did the president sit down with Bob Woodward? So Trump said today at the White House that he respects Woodward as a reporter just from hearing his name over the years. And he thought it would be interesting to talk to him. And we know that Woodward has written books on Trump's predecessors, and Trump has complained publicly after he wasn't interviewed for Woodward's 2018 book, Fear. It's just crazy to think of, you know, when the president is unfiltered, he says a lot of things that could be used against him. And that's pretty much the criticism here is that there is nobody else to blame for this other than the president's own words. He said that he wanted to downplay how bad the pandemic could have been. And, you know, that plays into attacks of all his detractors, basically. What else did we find out from the Woodward book? I know there was a lot of talk about how he interacted with Kim Jong-un from North Korea and also Vladimir Putin of Russia. So in the book, Woodward also reported that an aide to former Defense Secretary James Mattis said in the book that he overheard Trump saying in a meeting, quote, my f***ing generals are a bunch of because they had prioritized alliances over trade deals. And that stood out to me because Trump and his allies have actually had to be on the defense this past week over the anonymous sourcing in the Atlantic that accused Trump of repeatedly disparaging the intelligence of service members. So that was one part of the book that was actually really relevant for what Trump and the White House has been defending against on how Trump handles the military and armed forces. Orion Rumler, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Oscar. I really appreciate it. Finally for this week, there are eight critical battleground states where the 2020 election will be won or lost. Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin represent 127 electoral votes and a potential roadmap for victory for the candidates. President Trump has to turn out rural voters, and Joe Biden needs a huge turnout in big cities. And in many of these states, suburban women hold the balance of power. For more on these eight states to watch for the November election, we'll speak to Michael Cruz, senior staff writer at Politico. As always, this presidential election almost certainly will be decided by small numbers of voters in small numbers of places, in small numbers of states, and those are the eight states that matter the most, for better or for worse. As you alluded to, we can tell just based on the focus that both candidates, both campaigns are paying to these states and have paid for months, if not years, in the case, certainly, of the Trump campaign. One thing that is a similarity, an absolute reality of all these states is the suburban importance and the urban and rural divide. All of these states have cities that are almost entirely, certainly overwhelmingly blue. And then you get outside of those cities and it's overwhelmingly red. And where these states are going to be decided, generally speaking, are those slivers in between the suburbs, in some cases the exurbs, but often sort of those closer in suburbs, population well-educated, high degrees of not necessarily undecided voters, but unaffiliated. They're up for grabs. 
And so I think that is something that if there is a similarity, all these eight states, obviously very, very different when you compare Wisconsin to Florida, say, but that is a similarity across the board. These eight states will represent 127 electoral votes. So let's run through some of them real quick. And then I want to focus a little bit more on North Carolina, because that's an interesting state where there's a couple things happening there. But let's start with Arizona is one of the first swing states that's going to decide the 2020 election. Why is Arizona on this list? Arizona's on this list because of Phoenix and the Phoenix suburbs, right? A frequent story, what we were just talking about, and it is a function of demographic change for the people who have moved to Phoenix from other places like California, and also the uptick in the Latino population. Those two things are creating a different political climate in Arizona and a political climate that has turned that state traditionally a safe place for Republicans into a swing state. And in some ways, it depends on which numbers you slice and dice, but in some ways, a more gettable swing state for Biden and for Democrats than some other places in the upper Midwest that traditionally have been considered much more blue rather than red. Florida is also on this list. Joe Biden has a lead over the president in a lot of polls there, but this one is still giving a lot of people uneasy feelings that the president is going to win it anyway. Florida is Florida, and Florida has been Florida for decades at this point. It is basically a state in which elections are won with 50.1% of the vote. It is a giant state with almost six or seven different distinct states within the state, and it adds up to an incredibly contested piece of political terrain, incredibly contested because of the split in political makeup and also because of just its value. It is the nation's biggest swing state, which is to say the nation's most important swing state. Little tiny changes in preferences, little tiny changes in population from the I-4 corridor through Orlando down to the Tampa Bay area, across to Miami and Fort Lauderdale. It is always always a total toss-up and will be the same way this November. Georgia is an interesting one because um, Democrats are going to need to do a lot of work there. They'd need a big blowout in the Atlanta suburbs there and a huge surge in black voter turnout for Joe Biden to win that state. Frankly, I would be surprised if Georgia swings blue at this point. You just need such a large turnout in Atlanta, both from black and brown voters but also that whiter suburban vote to overwhelm what is still a rural Georgia elsewhere. It's just a tougher lift for Biden and for all Democrats. But perhaps in cycles to come, it is a gettable state for Democrats statewide and at the presidential level. Minnesota, President Trump has said that he is going to be competitive there. The polls have tightened a little bit and both campaigns are pouring a lot of money into that state. It is a surprisingly up-for-grab state, right? Trump in 2016 almost won Minnesota, which came as a shock to a lot of people. But in some ways, at this point, it is on the table. It is a possibility for Trump. You think of Minnesota, you think blue, you think Ultramontale. You do not think this is Trump territory. But one of the more interesting factoids in the story written by my colleague David Siders is that there are a quarter million white, non-college-educated males in Minnesota who are not registered. In other words, the stereotypical Trump voter who did not vote for Trump in 2016 and is out there 
this is a piece of a path to victory for Trump, not just in Minnesota, but overall. If he can turn out the kinds of voters who voted for him in 2016, who surprised us in 2016 by showing up at the polls, if that sort of non-voter can become a voter in 2020, we might be surprised by Minnesota and surprised overall again in 2020. And finally, North Carolina, you guys call this the swingiest of the swing states. There's a lot of uh, suburban women that hold the power in this. And you always hear people, well, oh, everybody's already made up their mind. That's not necessarily the case in North Carolina. They're still making up their mind and they could you know, decide at the last minute. So in North Carolina, I think, brings to a fine point what is true in so many of these swing states, and that is there is this identifiably important small segment of the electorate that will swing not only North Carolina, or we think will swing, almost certainly will swing, be decisive in North Carolina, and therefore beyond, right? What happens in North Carolina, I think, will be indicative of what happens in other places. And the, the most important voters in North Carolina are white suburban women in close-in suburbs around Charlotte and Raleigh. I mean, these are the two biggest cities in North Carolina, and it is here where the most consequential changes have occurred in the electorate and in demographics, not just in the last four years, eight years, 12 years, but literally since 2018, literally in some cases in just the last year. And when we look at North Carolina, what happened in 2018 was places that the president won by sufficient margins in 2016 broke blue in 2018 in those midterms. And if that is predictive in any way of what we will see in 2020, the president is going to have a hard time winning the state again, partly because of what has happened just since 2018 in terms of new voter registrations and in terms of mail-in ballots, in large part because of the pandemic. More than 600,000 mail-in ballot requests have been made in North Carolina for November, and the overwhelming majority, more than 80 percent of them, have come from Democrats and from independents. And so if those registrations, more Democrats than Republicans, more Democrats and independents than Republicans in the last two years, in the last four years and two years, and if those mail-in ballots, those requested ballots turn into actual votes, that might be the swing here in North Carolina. And I think it's fair to say that if Donald Trump doesn't win North Carolina, he just will not win re-election. It is not quite as important as Florida because of just the uh, difference in electoral votes, Florida having nearly twice as many. But Florida and North Carolina are sort of two canaries in the coal mine. If, if Trump cannot win Florida and if Trump cannot win North Carolina, beyond even the numerical consideration, it just means that the country as a whole has moved away from him and he will not be reelected. Well, these are the eight states to watch for this next election. Michael Cruz, senior staff writer at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. 